It is really my privilege to introduce the speaker, the keynote speaker today, who is personally an inspiration to me. We had a chance to, to, to have a meal yesterday together and learn about his story, coming from a family where we were the first to go to university as the eldest and to really serve as an example for the siblings that followed. And to then come, we're very fortunate to have you on our faculty. Uh, he not only is a leader in his field, but he is someone who gives back to the institution. I call him an institution builder. So Walter is a mechanical engineering professor. He is the director of the Clean Energy Research Center and the associate dean of research and industrial partnership. He works very, very hard on behalf of the institution to make it a stronger place uh, for students and faculty. He has worked on clean energy solutions for more than 20 years, which means he was only seven when he started. He currently leads the Transportation Futures Group at the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. He also serves on the board of directors of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium, the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association, and the Institute of Breakthrough Energy Technology. Uh, in 2016, he was recognized as one of Canada's Clean 50, and in 2017, he received the Wall Scholar Research Award from the Peter Wall Institute for advanced studies. Ladies and gentlemen, please give Dr. Walter Merida a round of applause. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ono, for that very kind introduction. I feel no pressure to live up to it. Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. It really is a privilege to be here. As Dr. Ono said, this is quite a place. Um, and I am really happy to, to be here to share some of the work that we are doing at UBC. Before I begin, though, I would like to ask, does anyone in the audience know why we measure oil by the barrel? If you do, hold your answer until later in the talk. We'll come back to that point. We are at the threshold, I think, of the next grand transition in energy system evolution. And we're in the current era of hydrocarbons. But it all started with the discovery of fire. For hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, all of humanity's needs were provided by biomass in the form of firewood. And if you look at the ratio of hydrogen to carbon, it was about 1 to 10. Many years later, the steam engine was invented in this very country. And this is the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. And that invention enabled the first revolution in transportation and trade. Soon, locomotives and ships were crossing the oceans and linking the continents. And the hydrogen to carbon ratio was about one to one, so less carbon. About 100 years later, we made the transition from coal to oil. And because oil is a liquid, it can be pumped and piped across long distances. And once again, the relative amount of carbon has decreased. Another 100 years later, we are now seeing a transition to natural gas. And as you look at the molecule of methane, which is the main gas in natural gas, the hydrogen to carbon ratio is now even smaller, 4 to 1. So even before climate change or environmental concerns were in the public domain, the energy system has been progressively decarbonized. So that's the first trend I wanted to, to, to let to tell you about. Now, I really believe that we are moving to a zero carbon energy system. 
And I'm sure that you have all heard about renewable energy, wind and solar, and all the great uh, improvements that we have experienced in the last 20 years. So the question is not so much, you know, why aren't we moving to renewable energy or to low carbon energy? The real question is, why is the, the, the fossil fuel era so resilient? Why is it taking so long to change? I have summarized that, you know, several thousand years of um, history in this chart. Because the other thing that has happened, of course, is that with the global population for hundreds of thousands of years was very stable when we were running everything on biomass with high carbon content. Once the Industrial Revolution kicked in, the global population increased exponentially. And you can see the transitions from biomass to coal to oil to natural gas and now to the next energy sources. And the one thing I want you to notice is that it has taken about a century to make each of those transitions. And all of those transitions have been triggered by a technology breakthrough. So, but the question is, why is it that we are not moving faster to zero carbon energy? So why do fossil fuels dominate? And the first thing we should remember is that despite all the progress in solar and wind and all these new sources, more than 80% of our global energy supply is still fossil. Only about less than 20% comes from non-fossil sources. If you take the non-fossil part and you stretch it to see what's going on there, you will find that most of it is biomass used as firewood in the developing world, and then nuclear hydro, and everything else that you hear about, wind, solar, geothermal, is less than 2% of the total energy supply. So why is that? One way to look at the problem is to separate everything that society needs into two grand categories of services. Things that you can provide with electricity and things that you cannot provide with electricity. So fertilizer, food production, lubricants, medicines, you need a chemical for that. Illumination, communication, digital services, financial services, you can provide that with electricity. The reason that fossil fuels dominate is that they can do both. They can provide chemical services and electrical services. The challenge for renewable energy is that most of the renewable energy sources can only produce electricity. And we cannot store electricity in large quantities. So what you need to cross the gap here between renewable energy and chemical services is the areas that I work in in my research. We are basically trying to build a bridge between renewable energy sources and the entire energy system, not just the electrical domain. Hydrogen is the simplest chemical that you can imagine. It's the only chemical that you can produce from electricity and water by electrolysis in large quantities, and you can store it. So when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing, you can still have access to that energy. Now, I'm sure you have heard in the newspapers uh, when someone announces the inauguration of a new wind or solar energy plant, they typically tell you how many homes it could power. They say this new plant will, is sufficient to power these many hundreds of thousands of homes. Have you ever wondered why they never give you that number in terms of the number of trucks, ships, or cars that it could replace? The reason is very simple. There is a huge imbalance between the electrical demand and the chemical demand. 
So to fly from Vancouver to Frankfurt, for example, we typically take the Airbus 380. If you look at the fuel tank in, the, in that airplane and you measure the amount of energy that goes into the tank and you divide by the time it takes to fill the tank, you get the power transaction. And you will quickly realize that to fill a single airplane is 1.5 gigawatts of power. This is why there's a huge imbalance between the chemical domain and the electrical domain. The other problem is density. These are aerial photographs of two of the most modern solar energy plants in the world. And if you were to take to measure the area and figure out how much power per square meter or per square foot you can generate, you will quickly realize that wind, for example, or solar is four to nine watts per square meter. If you compare that to a coal plant, which can produce 100 or 1,000 watts per square meter, you quickly see the big discrepancy. So, all this to say that the next time you hear about a renewable energy source, you really have to think in terms of sustainability. The right whales were called the right whales because they were the right whales to harpoon. They were slow, they lived close to shore, and they produced whale oil, which was used for illumination and other things. Now, if you look at the whale oil, that was a biofuel produced from renewable sources. So that sounds all very positive. The problem was we started to harvest whales or to hunt the whales faster than they could replenish themselves. So a renewable source doesn't necessarily mean that you have a sustainable source. This figure here is out of my very first paper as a graduate student about 20 years ago. And as you can see, we were trying to look at the energy transition in, in, in the transportation sector. In addition to the decarbonization that I described before, the other interesting thing about this transition is that the moment you can use these sources, wind, solar, tidal, and produce a chemical fuel, you eliminate the geopolitical dependence on imported fossil fuels. So the impact of this transition is not just technology it can also have an impact on the geopolitics around the world. But the main point is that it takes about 100 years to make the transition, and the problem is we don't have 100 years. So this is what's different. Left to its own devices, the energy system would have progressed to a zero-carbon state anyway. The problem is that climate change is imposing much shorter time frames for us to find a solution. And that has created a new narrative. I have been attending the, the climate change conferences, and as I'm sure you heard in, the, in Paris in 2015, the climate accord was signed, and targets were set to reach to keep the temperature changes below two degrees Celsius. Two very interesting changes have happened since then. In Marrakesh, for the first time, the amount of investment required to make that possible was estimated. And it was estimated that approximately $40 trillion of new investment will be required to make that happen. A year later, in, in Bonn, Governor Jerry Brown, for example, started to identify, from California, he started to identify specific sectors, and transportation was one of them. And this is why, as you will see later, we are working on that at UBC. The other thing that uh, was identified is the fact that even though we have 200 plus countries around the world perhaps, there are only 40 large megacities or mega regions that 
produce most of the GDP and most of the emissions around the world. So Governor Brown and others made the case for investment uh, development banks and, and other entities to open the financial instruments that until now were only available to central governments to cities. And that could be a big change because cities will have a more prominent role in making the transition. But in Paris, in addition to the climate accord, which was a political breakthrough, three other announcements were made which perhaps didn't make as, as much news as, as the climate accord. But they were, in my opinion, more important, perhaps. The first one was the creation of Mission Innovation, which is a coalition of 23 countries plus the European Union. And these countries have pledged to double their investment in climate solutions. That, when you add up all the national budgets, represents about $10 billion over five years. At the same time, this is on the government side, on the private side, Bill Gates and some of his friends created the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, which is aiming to divert investment to these new climate solutions. And again, it's a few billion dollars per year. Finally, our own Mark Carney, who was the governor of the Bank of Canada and is now, of course, the, uh, running the Bank of England, created a task force within the Financial Stability Board that he chairs, and that entity provides advice to the G20 countries. These countries produce 90% of the GDP around the world, 90% of the emissions, and control 95% of the financial assets. So if you want to make an impact at the global scale, this is a good platform to do so. The task force is led by Michael Bloomberg, the ex-mayor of New York, and they are trying to quantify the exposure to climate change that corporations have. So if you're an investor, you will now have a number that you can look to to, the, to decide if you want to invest in a particular company. Now, this is all promising, and this was in 2015, but it's not enough. If you remember the number I gave you, the $40 trillion, this is a few billion dollars per year, is not enough. So the big realization is that governments alone cannot do this. And this is very important, because that means that the, the, the way that we partner with other stakeholders is very important. Now, $40 trillion may sound like an, an exorbitant amount of money until you start looking at where capital is sitting around the world. And I just, this is a bit out of date, but you can, if you just take the top 10 national uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, you quickly realize that there is quite a bit of capital sitting waiting to be invested. And Ireland, the city of New York, the state of New York, and Norway are all talking about divesting their portfolios from fossil fuels. So this is a huge opportunity for those countries and regions that can provide the solutions because this investment will have to be reallocated. So, back to the barrels. Does anyone know why we sell oil by the barrel? The reason is that when oil was first drilled in Pennsylvania, it literally started gushing out of the ground and people quickly ran out of places to put the oil. And they started to use whiskey barrels to, 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 to keep the oil. Very quickly, the whiskey barrels became way more expensive than the oil that they contained. So I use that as a metaphor because as the energy system is changing, there will be plenty of opportunity to capture those, those uh, 
possibilities and at the same time do something positive for the planet, which is new. So UBC is, as, as Dr. Otto mentioned, is already a leader in quantum materials, not only the materials but also the information technologies associated with that. And we have a number of areas which I'm for, I would love to talk to you about each one of these. And I will be very happy to, to talk to you after the presentation. But I'm just going to cover a few of them. Transportation, as I said, is a special. Because if you, you can move electric vehicles and other things in the city with electricity, but if you need to fly an airplane or move a large ship or a large train, you need a chemical fuel. So the, the trick is how do you make the fuel without carbon? And we are working on that very question. These five areas are groups of uh, researchers under a project that I, uh, I have been leading for the last couple of years, looking at changing the way that transportation systems work around the world. And we, of course, are looking at connected and electric and zero emission vehicles like everyone else. And you, you may recognize the, the Rose Garden is just down the hill. This is uh, all the major manufacturers of hydrogen vehicles brought their models to the campus. We are trying to partner with them to have a demonstration project on campus. And this is the Mercedes-Benz plant that opened in Burnaby. And we have been working with them on the next generation of fuel cell manufacturing technology. So if you look at a, a, a car making plant right now, you have engines and you have big pieces of metal. If you look at the manufacturing processes that will be required for battery and fuel cell vehicles, the processes are more similar to paper making and the electronics industry than they are to conventional engine manufacturing. So very, uh, all kinds of opportunity to, to innovate. And we are working with these partners at BBC. This plant is just 40 minutes from the Vancouver campuses. Now, the most interesting thing is the new business models that may emerge. So the other, one of the other projects we are working on is to take a parkade, a parking garage, and add solar panels to the roof. Not because solar energy makes a lot of sense with, in British Columbia with all the hydro that we have, but because we are working on the high power electronics and, and the technologies to convert large quantities of electricity to recharge electric vehicles. We will then aggregate the electric vehicles on campus in the same building to create what is essentially a, a large, a gigantic battery. So we will be able to store electricity in the cars just because they are parked there anyway. And the cars will be able to also send power to the grid when needed. That, as you can imagine, is going to create an interesting business case. You know, if I'm a car owner, who decides how to use my battery? We will also have a hydrogen refueling station produced by electrolysis to fill hydrogen cars. And then we will be taking some of that hydrogen across the substation into the campus energy center, which at the moment is right across from the pharmacy building. We will inject some of that hydrogen into the natural gas grid, which does two things. By injecting the hydrogen into the natural gas pipelines, you lower the carbon content of the natural gas without any penalty in energy. And at the same time, you are effectively storing the electrical generation that you had on the roof into a gas in what's essentially an infinite vessel because now the entire natural gas grid is your storage vessel for that electricity. So 
The, the title of the talk contained this word optimism. I really feel optimistic because I really see that finally we have not only the technologies but also the business cases and the societal acceptance for some of these new energy system models. And Vancouver just happens to be the center of it all. We are <laughs> as you can tell from the map, right? We are positioned at the north end of the Cascadia Corridor. British Columbia and California are the two jurisdictions that have a carbon tax and or a low carbon fuel standard. If you, if you add up British Columbia, Oregon, Washington, and California, you have the fifth largest economy in the world. Same time zone, same fuel standards. We have a tremendous opportunity to capitalize on the leadership that UBC has for this first market. And finally, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I hope that when she learns about the history of energy systems, she will see a graph like this one, where the fossil fuel era is just a glitch in the grand arc of human history. Thank you very much for your attention. And I'll be happy to take any questions that you may have. Thank you. My name is Pradeep Jetty. I'm the uh, CEO of uh, an organization called the Social Stock Exchange. Um, I, for all of their faults, um, uh, cars and airplanes are still quite efficient um, in terms of their use of fossil fuels. My concern at the moment is actually one of the most inefficient and dirtiest of transport um, systems, which is shipping. Um, are you at UBC addressing shipping at all? Yes. Given we're also, you know, effectively a big shipping hub. But yes. it's, as you know, the fuel used and the way it discharges and everything, it's terribly inefficient. Um, Transporter. Not only that, but the fuel used by shipping is the cheapest, dirtiest fuel ever. And um, so the short answer is yes, we are working with the Port of Vancouver. As you know, the Port of Vancouver is the largest port in Canada. And it's also the second largest port on the western uh, side of the, of the continental um, North America. So Vancouver was the first port to require ships to plug in. So ships coming into port now have to plug into the grid rather than run their generators to power their, their operations while they are at, at, at port. And we are working with them to modernize, if you like, not only that part, but also the dryage vehicles and the cranes and all the, the equipment that goes around the port. So the short answer is yes. We, we are not work, working not only with the port who, they have a mandate actually, they have a strategy called Port 2050, and it's online, I welcome if you're interested to download it, because they have very specific plans to lower their carbon footprint. Uh, so that's in the, in the you know, very futuristic, there's all kinds of innovation. If you, if you move to a, an, an electric propulsion drive, instead of having one central massive engine, you can have distributed engines which add a lot of maneuverability to the big ships. So you may not need the towboats, for example. Uh, but we're also working with the airport uh, to, to look at the, at, the, um, at the cargo, you know, and the, and the freight vehicles in the port. And finally, right here, I can't remember right now the, the name of the company, but there is a company right here in the UK working on a hydrogen plane because if you could power, you know, hydrogen is the fuel that the 
space shuttle uses, and there is a reason for that. Hydrogen is the lightest fuel on, a, on an energy basis. So if you could power airplanes with hydrogen, the airplanes will be much lighter. Or conversely, it could be much larger for the same amount of weight. And on top of that, you could make them hypersonic. So this company, I can't remember the name, unfortunately, but it's right here in the UK. They are proposing hypersonic hydrogen plane to fly from Frankfurt to Sydney, Australia in four hours without carbon emissions. And, and that would revolutionize air tra travel as well. So, and we are working on some of those ideas as well at UBC. Yeah. Um, did you like Um, so we invest in businesses in Africa and South Asia, and renewable energy is part of our, the sectors we focus on. I think what's quite interesting is as an alumni at UBC, UBC is great at building bridges across countries. Um, when I looked at your presentation, it's really quite fascinating what you're doing. What I'd love to understand is how are you building bridges with things that are happening perhaps outside of Europe and outside of North America? And the reason why I say is for solar energy, China is miles ahead in terms of solar panels, in terms of battery technology, and even on wind turbines. So my fear is I don't want us, you know, on the alumni side or UBC to remain that far behind. So I would love to hear sure. in terms of working with international parties that are outside of Europe or North America, sure. what are some of the efforts? So if you notice that map with the, the lines going to Vancouver, each line is not, is not just arbitrary. Each line represent a par represents a partnership. So absolutely, China is actually the largest investor in renewable energy at the moment. But I would say that they have made incredible progress on the manufacturing of the solar panels. But where it's at, in my opinion, solar panels are now a commodity. You can buy them from many different manufacturers and they are extremely cheap. The cheapest power in the world is solar power. Chile just signed a 260 megawatt uh, plant deal to take solar power directly into their metro. And that, that, that power contract was under two cents a kilowatt hour US. So the cheapest power is solar power. But what I think we are working on is not the panels at all, is, is the high voltage hardware that you will need to convert large amounts of DC electricity. You know, all these buildings run on AC electricity. There is absolutely no reason with all the things that we run now that require DC power, we plug them into the wall and then the power supply has to go from AC to DC again. Why can't we make buildings DC? So that's that parquet that I described to you, that's one of the things we are going to be doing with it. But each line on, those, on, on that map represented a partnership. We just came back with, from, with Dr. Ono from Germany. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but UBC is the only university in Canada working with formal collaborations between the Max Planck Society, the Fraunhofer Society, and DLR, which is the German Aerospace Agency. So we have, we're actually pretty good, I would say, at, at international partnerships. One of the reasons is that a lot of the innovation that UBC and Canada in general can produce, the market for it in Canada is too small. So we definitely need to connect to other markets to get that innovation out. And that's part of the reason we are here in Europe uh, right now, actually, working on those partnerships. Um, when you're looking at the physical infrastructure behind uh, oil and gas and then and comparing it to what we'd be needing in the future, is it more of a conversion from 
like converting the infrastructure or do you think we'd be building new new hardware essentially and then how much of a delay does that add where you have a technology but then how do you implement it and roll it across I guess like all of society and the world that's a great question because the the the, the inertia of the sunk investment is, is enormous so but I would say the, the short answer is you'll do both so for example um, using the natural gas infrastructure the, the electrical and gas grids in Canada are two of the most valuable national assets, I would say. So injecting hydrogen is one way of using the existing infrastructure with a new technology or a new business model. And uh, for example, you can inject up to 7% hydrogen into the natural gas grid without any changes to your natural gas infrastructure. And that's a way of transferring clean energy from one point of the country to another. Now, Canada is blessed with lots of energy, but places like Germany, for example, all the wind resources in the north of Germany, all the wind energy resources is in the north of Germany, and yet most of the demand is in the south. We were just in Stuttgart, the heart of the automotive industry in Germany. So it's challenging because when the wind is not blowing, you know, you cannot even generate the, 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 the electricity. But even if you have it, the, the, the wires may not be sufficient to carry enough energy down to the south of Germany. One way of doing that is to inject large amounts of hydrogen and move the energy as hydrogen down to the south. So that's how you could use existing infrastructure. The new infrastructure is actually very exciting because um, as autonomous vehicles, for example, become a reality, a lot of new business cases are going to emerge. So for example, parking is one of the most expensive things, I'm sure, in London and in Vancouver. But if electricity goes to under two cents a kilowatt hour, and vehicles don't require a human to be driven, maybe they, it will be cheaper to just keep the car moving constantly and servicing people as it goes rather than parking it. And we have done the calculations and it actually is cheaper. So parking may become a thing of the past. A second thing is if, if this sharing economy really takes hold, the ownership model for vehicles will change. Already, uh, young people in Canada are not getting a driver's license. They don't want a driver's license. And if you're a condo developer, and you think, well, maybe I can build a condo and then attach to the condo ownership the ability to share a fleet of vehicles in my building. So during the week, you may use the small smart cars to go around, but on the weekend, you may have a, a larger vehicle to go camping. Now, if that happens, do you integrate the car or the cost of ownership of the vehicle into the condo? And therefore, is it part of your mortgage? So the repercussions on all insurance and, and all this are going to be enormous. But at the same time, they're going to create the impetus for new investments. So Mercedes-Benz beat us to the concept. You know, we are a university, so we have to go through the normal proposal writing and so on. But last year, they announced they have a spin-off in California to be doing exactly what we are proposing to do, which is to use the, the, the batteries in vehicles for energy storage. The battery in your vehicle is, is put through a lot of very aggressive cycling, and it degrades. But even when it's not good for the car anymore, it has about 80% of its useful life as an energy storage device. So that's what they are proposing to do. So, you know, in the same way, I, I remember... Uh, um, when I was a student, I couldn't imagine what we would be doing with our handheld devices. I, I really think we're just at the beginning of that new, new era.
Yes. He wants to go on holiday about 200 miles to the Lake District in, in the UK, but he wasn't confident that there were enough charging points. I, my question is, are you doing research into making cars go further with electricity and hydrogen? Because at the moment in this country, I'm, I'm British, um, the technology is, getting, is not catching up with people's desires. Yeah, I think that that's a related question to the infrastructure question. So yes, you will need to build more, more infrastructure. Um, I would divide, for, for urban needs, the electric vehicle make, makes all kinds of sense because you can you know, find points of charging. But for longer range, you definitely think, especially if you're looking at freight and larger vehicles, trucks, you need to look at the chemical pathway, which is why we work on hydrogen. So Germany, Japan, South Korea are building the infrastructure. So in Germany, you can, maybe not now, but in the next three years, you will be able to drive a hydrogen vehicle all throughout Germany. They have about 100 refueling stations already. We are building one at UBC, and Vancouver will have another five, I believe. So there will be six refueling stations in Vancouver. But you're absolutely right. That's one of the biggest challenges, and this is one of the areas where governments need to come together because it's, I think, will be extremely difficult for uh, manufacturers to take that challenge themselves. Yes, yes. And, and you know, countries like ours, uh, which have uh, cold winters, the batteries take a big hit in winter, so your range is even smaller than that. But that's a new investment. Yep. Oh, yeah. I work at Google, and I'm actually a mechanical engineering alum, and I took some of your classes about oh, 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, good, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just curious, uh, how do you see the future of zinc oxide in uh, solar technology? Well, it's an interesting question. It, let, let me just say this. Batteries in general, you know, the, the big, uh, if you notice in my, my arrow of time diagram, I said, you know, one of the implications is that you remove the geopolitical dependence on a particular region for your oil, right? But we have to be a little bit careful because lithium, which is one of the, not, not zinc oxide, but lithium is one of the main elements for the lithium-ion batteries in your car. And at the moment, Australia and other places produce most of it. But the reserves are in South America. Bolivia and Chile hold, I think, 50% of the reserves of lithium. And Evo Morales in Bolivia is looking at nationalizing the lithium mines. So, you know, as we, and, you know, the same thing could be said about cobalt. Cobalt, the cobalt that we use in many of our devices right now is, is producing under very, I would say, uh, unfair and unjust conditions for the people that produce the resource. So as these new technologies move into, this, into the, the wider population, we need to look at these uh, questions. Platinum, which is one of the main uh, elements used in uh, electrochemical energy conversion, is produced, 80% of platinum is produced by South Africa. So, you know, it's not, it's not like we are just eliminating the problems. One of the reasons I am a big fan of hydrogen is that it can be produced from anything. As long as you have water and an energy source, you can produce your hydrogen. So you don't depend on a particular uh, region of the world. Yes? This will be our last question. Um, <clears throat> I want to preface this by saying I'm not an engineer. Um, but about 15, 20 years ago, I used to head up the renewable energy practice for EY in Canada. Okay. And I used to focus on fuel cell because being in Vancouver, yep. Ballard Power Systems, right. and so on. 
so spent a lot of time in that space um, with with international companies. And, and you've addressed some of the issues. It's great to see that this is moving ahead, but some of the issues that were raised back then were the weight and the strength of the uh, tanks in vehicles, because hydrogen is you know, very porous. The um, number of refueling stations, you refer to Germany right now, but up and down uh, the West Coast, right? There was big plans for that. That yes. didn't happen. The Detroit uh, lobby trying to prevent some of this, right. hoping that the California regulations would move them in that direction. Little by little, they did. You mentioned uh, platinum, the cost curve of platinum and the overall cost curve. All these things were projected to get Ballard and others on the vehicle side, but also on the stationary power side to really ramp up over time, and it, it hasn't happened. You see the Ballard vehicles here on the RV, or the Ballard uh, signs on the RV1 buses, and you're seeing some growth there. But these sort of um, geopolitical economic issues and some, some practical engineering issues were getting in the way. Have we made significant progress, or when do you think that those forecasts that were made 15 years ago that the CFO and the president and CEO of Ballard would show me and others. Yeah. When do you think that that's going to start happening? So from a technology point of view, I can tell you that we are there. So, uh, you know, the average or the, you know, um, typical power range in, our, in an internal combustion engine is about a kilowatt per liter. Fuel cells can produce two or three kilowatts per liter. So that's not, the, the, the performance is not the issue. I would say it's cost at the moment and the infrastructure. That's the, the biggest the biggest barrier, and only governments can take the initiative uh, in that regard. Now, having said that, uh, Japan, uh, if you look at, they just had a report out, they have stated, if you can't produce uh, hydrogen at this price point, we will buy these many hundreds of thousands of tons per year. So some regions, of South Korea, the same thing. So if you are a, a hydrogen developer, you, you now have a very clear target in terms of all the manufacturing, the, the, the weight of the tanks that, that solved, you can get 650 kilometer range in your hydrogen car before refueling, and it takes five minutes or three minutes to refuel it. So that's, that's, that's not the issue. Uh, it's cost, really, and, and mass production. So Toyota uh, just announced, I, I would say three months ago, they're moving their manual uh, manufacturing plant to, automated, to an automated plant. And I think that's just the beginning because they, they, do, they can't keep up now with the demand. We want vehicles and they tell us we can't bring them because we don't have enough. So I think it's, it's, it's just the beginning. But from a technology point of view, I think it's, it's done. The, the durability and the, and the performance is there. It's just the cost right now. Thank you. Walter, I want, would you join me in giving Walter a really warm Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.